Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Alright Brendan, 8.30pm Sunday night here, May 15th It's uh, It's been a while how you doing? I am doing well. It has been a few weeks since we've had a chance to record. Both you and I were you know, going through our own exam period. So congratulations to us for finishing up. Congratulations to you. Uh, for people that don't know, Ricky finished up his business degree uh, this past week. Next week or this this coming Sunday, he has his graduation. So Rick, credit to you for, for getting that done. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Equally bravo to you for finishing up the first year of law school and having <laughs> you know, a six month run of this podcast. I think that's uh, that's definitely pretty impressive for the both of us. Yeah. Well, ourselves yeah the on the back. yeah. There we go. Uh, all right. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Good to be done. Uh, you know, hopefully we can get into a, a decent rhythm here now that you know, things aren't quite so stressful on, on you know, our personal levels. Uh, so this week we got a few things to catch up on because like I said, it has been, a, has been a little while since we've had a chance to talk. And so we're going to talk about the census, the first numbers and results, uh, from last year's census started coming out over the past few weeks. So we're going to touch on that first, uh, then talk about Liz Cheney and the house Republicans and Elise Stefanik a little bit for a while. And then take a kind of a status check on where we are as a country dealing with uh, COVID and the, you know, hopefully the, the continued loosening of, of regulations and uh, the, hopefully we're starting to put this thing yeah, in the rear view. Um, and then we'll, we'll finish up t- touching on some, some sports things uh, or a sports thing where there's a, a pretty significant NBA hall of fame class was inducted last night. So uh, just, a, just, you know, a kind of a, a smorgasbord of, of, of issues that, that have crept up over the past past couple of weeks since we've talked. Uh, but before we get into all that, I do want to remind everyone out there that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. You can tell them Brendan and Ricky sent you if you, know, if you decide that you do want to purchase a, a desk or a table. And the guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you that if you've heard the term mid-century modern before, they don't care at all. <laughs> so go, so go by. Yeah. All right, uh, let's let's talk the census. So this is something that uh, you've you've done some research on. So why don't you kick this 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 part of the program off? Yeah, I mean, I I think we try and nerd out on on some of these weird sort of more esoteric topics about politics and kind of the inner workings of our government from time to time. And the census is one that, you know, I think doesn't come up that often, but actually has a pretty um, significant role in, in how, um, in how our government functions and how we sort of uh, proportion out uh, political power um, 
among the states. Uh, so I wanted to take a second to to talk about some of these preliminary numbers. Um, you know, at this point, we don't have any information really about demographics. It's primarily just uh, who's going to get. Well, all right. So let's let's start from the beginning. What is the census? Um, it's a once a decade count of the U.S. population by state. Um, constitutionally mandated. So it goes back to uh, the first census was done in 1790. Um, but I think as as everybody knows, um, you know, it's it's really pretty recent where it actually tries to capture all living persons within the United States as of a specific date, um, which is April 1st of the census year. So it's supposed to be that like snapshot of exactly how many people are living where. Um, and we, as we know, this past year, uh, that happened to happen, you know, smack dab in the middle of our first wave of lockdowns, um, which actually saw quite a bit of people moving about the country. So a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting things that, you know, typically are not discussed as part of the census kind of coming up here. Um, but what does it do? So it's going to set the number of congressional seats that each state gets. So each state always gets two senators. Um, but on top of it, they get apportioned a certain number of congressional seats. That's the 435 House of Representatives kind of gets pushed out um, based on that census data. And um, so, you know, California's uh, 54 or, or something like that, that they've, that they've had the largest state um, in the country, you know, just based on their population. Um, and then those, those, how those seats in the house of representatives, plus the two Senate seats also uh, direct where those electors come from in the electoral college. Um, so certainly big deal um, within sort of, potentially, you know, moving around some power within the House of Representatives. Um, also, in a closer election year, um, or closer by state election year, you can you can see some of the census having some impacts. And then the, the sort of the other major, major piece of it um, is that federal aid gets apportioned out based on um, a lot of the census data. Um, and of course, we know uh, based on the trillions of dollars that we continue to talk about, um, that it's quite a bit of money uh, on the table. So, you know, coming out of the census sort of with an accurate representation um, is is very important for, for getting aid to the right places. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a high level overview. I'm wondering if you have any initial takeaways or, or things that you've heard so far. Yeah, a lot of it wasn't, or what I heard wasn't particularly unexpected in that the immigration rate slowed to the, to the lowest percentage since the 1940s, I believe, um, which, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so the population grew uh, at, a, at a really low rate um, since maybe the 1930s or 40s. And the, the demographic shifts continued to be to the south, to the west, uh, a little bit to the northwest, which was a little surprising to me, but I know I was looking, the the states, the five states that had the biggest population shifts were Utah, Idaho, Texas, North Dakota, North Dakota, and Nevada, uh, which, you know, if we're looking at it 
geographically, we're talking about warmer weather states. If we're looking at it politically, we're talking Republican states. Uh, and I think that's, you'll probably get into that a little bit more. And I'm curious, you know, to hear your thoughts on it. And I want to talk about that too. Uh, but yeah, to me, it was just kind of indicative of, of trends that we had been seeing for a little while. And there was nothing really shocking to me with the results I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that that's absolutely right. So this past census, um, if it if it was indeed accurate, we had the slowest population growth th- since 1940. Actually, the third straight decade in which our population growth rate um, decreased census on census. Um, with that, we saw six six states gain seats: so Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, Oregon, and, and Texas, which got which was the biggest winner, got two more seats. Um, and then seven states lost seats, California lost one, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia lost one. So uh, doing the math at home, um, I think that's like a net six for for more or less Republican-leaning states. Um, I think someone could could fact check me on that, could, could, could have done that wrong. But um, the... I think generally, you know, geographically, as you were saying, like the biggest losers up in the mid-Atlantic Northeast area, um, which as we know from the last two elections, um, you know, at least at the national stage can kind of go either way now, like the Pennsylvanias and the Michigans um, with, you know, maybe more democratic leaning Illinois and maybe more Republican leaning West Virginia, or definitely more Republican leaning West Virginia. Um <clears throat> But it is, you know, things I think a lot of uh, there has been a lot of talk about migration from, you know, blue states as in you'll sort of hear a Republican talking point that like the policies in these states are driving the people away from these states. And I, th- I think that is something um, probably worth touching on. I, I think so- more of what you're saying, though that like, you know, the blue states tend to be high cost of living states. They tend to be worse weather states, California aside. Um, And we're living in a new world where remote work is just pre-COVID even was growing in prevalence. And so we're potentially seeing these demographic shifts um, unfold here, which, you know, a lot of how we think about politics has to do with these entrenched views that we have of states, right? Like Georgia was such a huge surprise because in general, last two, three, four decades, like Georgia is just Republican red. That's all that it is. And now we're starting to see a little bit more of that landscape shift. And it's, you know, unlikely that people who leave these states, if they were sort of uh, more democratically leaning, left the states and left their politics behind, um, and kind of, uh, you know, adopted things. So I think that that's definitely an interesting development um, to keep on. Yeah, I'll pick I'll pick up on that point in a minute. But just I, I read an article in kind of looking at this topic, which I found really interesting, just purely from like the the trend level of populations. And I think since like the mid, let's say the 1950s, New York has lost seats every single census. So New York, which again, it still continues to be one of the most populous states in, in the country, but obviously for, I would say probably a couple hundred years was the most populous state in the country. And over the last, you know, 70 years has continued every, you know, every 10 years, every decade to lose, you know, 
population relative to the rest of the country. On the other hand, Florida, since that same date, has gained uh, population and relative to the country and has gained seats in every single census. Uh, and then California lost one, like you said, for the first time ever. Like there, while California's population increased, again, relative to the rest of the country, it, it didn't increase that much. So they lost this seat for the first time ever. And then something else I thought, uh, West Virginia is the only state in the country to have fewer people now than they did in 1950. Like that they had, they've actually like, just from a pure number standpoint, they've lost people, their population over the last 70 years, which says you know a lot about kind of the fortunes in West Virginia, unfortunately. Uh, but as you also pointed out, though, you know, quote unquote, the Midwest or the Rust Belt, uh, you know, the Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, they continue that trend of, of losing people to, you know, Southern, the, the North Carolinas, the, the Virginias, the Floridas, Georgia, Texas. Uh, so it's, it's like I was saying earlier, it's really just these trends that we've seen over the last 50, 70 years, but really changing you know, the centers of power in a lot of ways in, in the country and where New York was by far the most powerful for, like I said, a couple hundred years. Now, Florida is in some ways more powerful than New York. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess it's it's another one of those things that is a um, potentially, well, not potentially, it really feels like it's going like the downfalls of the Electoral College with these moving with sort of the shifting demographics and population just within our country, just kind of the rearranging of it um, is something that, that we, you know, may have to contend with. And I think we'll certainly see kind of more of this play out as companies are, are trying to figure out, you know, what's their next move after, after, you know, one, as, as you said, like once we kind of get put this a little bit behind us, it's not going to be a straight, everybody goes right back to doing what they were doing. So how does that also change just kind of our, our national landscape? And one other, well, yeah, one other thing I thought was, I, I saw someone made this point, so it wasn't me, but I, that if you look at some, most of the states that are gaining people, so I mentioned them earlier, but Nevada, Utah, Texas, Florida, the weather there is great, but the reason that people can move there now is because of techno technological advances, chiefly air conditioning, where air conditioning like, wasn't available for obviously a very long time. And then when it was available, it wasn't available kind of to the masses to the extent that it is now, where before you couldn't really enjoy that, the quote unquote nice weather down there because it was like, it wasn't nice. It was far too hot and you know humid and muggy and swampy. And people didn't want to really live in those states. That's why Florida, like people didn't live there for years. It was, a, you go there to vacation and then you come home. Uh, but now with the changes in technology, for a lot of people, why would I live in Chicago and deal with you know below freezing temperatures and, and feet of snow when I can go live in Florida and like you said, potentially do the, the same job and have no income tax and I have AC and I can go out to the beach every day. It's like it so it there are potentially, and let's talk about this now. Like there are potentially political reasons why some people are moving to more real reddish, redder states, but I, th I think a lot of it probably more simply is I'm not moving because I, I like their politics. I'm moving because I like their weather. Yeah. And it, it is something to say about like how much politics really plays into everyone's day-to-day -day lives that 
that's probably well, not even not much. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so, so that'll be, I mean, definitely interesting, but, but again, like, you know, we've always talked about how people feel represented, especially by things like the electoral college where, you know, you feel like in a, in a blue state, my vote, my vote doesn't matter. Or in a traditionally red state, my vote doesn't matter. I think sort of the historical underpinnings of like what these states are have done versus what they might do in the future is definitely going to be something to keep an eye on. I think, you know, a couple other things just to mention about the census, right? It is a once every 10 years. And I think we know 10 years is a long time, especially in today's age, like 21st century mobility is at um, an all time high uh, for obviously for middle and upper classes. It doesn't extend um, to all aspects of the population, that's probably worth mentioning. But there are more and more people who are in that mobile category, more and more <clears throat> types of j- work instead of just being the factories of the Rust Belts, right, where all the jobs used to be. Now you have a lot of different types of work available um, that, as you said, you know, can be available from anywhere. Um, I think would probably just, you know, given or in light of a lot of the issues that we've talked about in the past, not, or we would be remiss not to mention kind of um, some of the shortcomings of the census and kind of how it's run, um, especially historically, like, you know, we know things like the the three-fifths compromise were part of uh, our constitution and really the, you know, the purpose of that was to direct how the census should treat, um, to, should treat African-American slaves, uh, then, but, but that didn't, you know, that wasn't the only way that they would sort of leave people out of the census. So for years, indigenous people were left out, I think until the 1940s or fifties, we just didn't count them at all. Um, these things were probably run in English. And so non-English speakers would have had a very difficult time. The census is not meant to only count citizens. It's meant to count all living persons as of April 1st um, in of, of that census year. And so, you know, there are states that do receive aid because there are you know, bigger immigrant or refugee populations in there. Um, but it's by design, right? We we assume that that you just need a certain amount of help per per person that lives in there. Um, and with this particular census, there were a lot of questions, right? The Trump administration tried to add a citizenship question, um, which some of these states that have lost seats are now sort of raising, you know, did we undercount certain populations because people were afraid, uh, either because of COVID or because of kind of uh, <clears throat> some of the changes the Trump administration was proposing, did we miss some of those people? Um, the census has never been a perfect count of the population, but some people are questioning, you know, how much is this an accurate representation of where the population has gone um, over the past 10 years, which is, I think is a tough one because there's really no mechanism for us to, to deal with it. It's it's not a perfect mechanism. It's probably quite honestly better than it ever has been today, like than it than it used to be for the last hundreds of years. Um, but 
you're right. Almost assuredly, we missed a, a fair number of, of Hispanic people uh, because of language barriers, because of potential fear of if you list yourself as a non-citizen, is am I going to have law enforcement, the you know DA showing up at my door? Um, I was thinking that the ICE uh, showing up at my door, right? It's with all that stuff in the news over the past few years. Uh, so I, almost assuredly, we undercounted the growth in Hispanic populations, particularly in states, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Utah, New Mexico, those type of states, but probably across the country. Uh, but to go back to something that I brought up earlier was, so this was the, the slowest growth uh, since the, the 1940, 1940 census. And that made sense. Obviously, 1930s, there was the Great Depression. World War II was just beginning. There were some shutdowns in immigration policies under um, FDR in terms of who we're, who we're letting in. Uh, and it makes sense in this decade too. If you look back to the beginning of you know this decade, we were still coming out of the you know the Great Recession and the financial crisis at the beginning of the decade. And then under President Trump, whether it was the policies or the rhetoric, also kept a number of people away. Uh, but the the growth immigration wise was almost exclusively his was overwhelmingly Hispanic, and it's something that we've talked about before, where the United States is an aging population. You know, the, the biggest generation are the baby boomers who are largely now in their 60s. They're you know, getting up there in their 70s and 80s. And there's pros and cons to this, in my opinion, where the U.S.'s growth continues to fall, as you said, over the last three decades. Uh, and not that it's flattening, but it, it's trending that way due to both like the you know white people in particular having few, fewer children, uh, the immigration, as we mentioned, has slowly declined since like the, the 80s, the 60s, 70s, really. Uh, and the, the trouble potentially with that is as you get an older population, and we're seeing this in Japan particularly, but also in countries like Germany and Italy who have aging populations, is it, it puts a strain on social services where we know where for, for Medicare and for uh, like the, for, for pensions and social security, those sorts of things is the people are aging out of the workforce and want their, their, their entitlements, the things that they have worked for and contributed to for years, like they're going to want and need those things. And if we have fewer people, fewer younger people, there are fewer people in the workforce. It, it, it just puts a strain on, on a lot of systems. Um, on the other hand, the U.S. grew, I think, almost like four times its size over the course of the 20th century. I, th I think it went from like 70 million to 280 million people over the course of the, the 1900s. And that's not sustainable either, right? Like it, the, the answer to economic problems is not just like um, perpetual growth. Like let's just keep adding more and more people to the country and that's going to solve all of the issues, right? So in, in some sense, I'm not upset that we have declining uh, growth. Ultimately, I think that's a good thing. But in the, in the near term, in the next 10, 20 years, it's going to force people to really reevaluate some policies and some of these entitlements that, you know, maybe we get at 65. I don't, is that still the right age to be giving those out? Like some of our immigration policies where, you know, we're maybe more nativist, that, that sentiment seems to be sweeping a large portion of the country. Is that really what we want economically? I think it's going to take force people on both sides to take a hard look because there are going to be some tough choices you would think coming up. Who knows? Maybe we'll just keep printing money. Yeah, I mean, the entitlements, I, I think, if, if people look closely at them, they're unfortunately 
you know, they run it as like a, like a Ponzi scheme or whatever the, we'll send you like 50 million cases of this special drink that you just got to find like another 10 people to sell those cases of the the special drink for you. It's um, right. Because it just, it relies on, you can pay the benefits as long as there are more people in the workforce paying into the, into social security um, and, and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, So that, that it's, it's definitely going to be something to look at. I think, Globally, what's interesting is is that this is really becoming um, a unique problem to advanced economies, right? You you mentioned Japan, we're seeing it in Germany. It's happening here in the U.S., um, where it seems like education, economic opportunity, are also leading to declining number of children per household, particularly, and you see it particularly, as you said, in in white families, um, probably unsurprisingly, because here in the States, they probably have the most access to opportunity, to education, to economic, you know, upward mobility and things like that, that you may delay family uh, planning for in order to kind of pursue, you know, higher education or climbing the corporate ladder, as it were. Uh, So, so that's, it's, it's not surprising. But then, as, as you said, like, what are, what are the solutions if you're if you're not gonna, I think Mitt Romney is proposing some additional uh, child care or you know child per child credits, tax credits um, for families to try and incentivize people to have more kids. Um, but if it's not that way, then immigration is is really where you have to look. And I don't I don't disagree that just you know continuing to throw bodies at problems is necessarily a sustainable long term solution. But I think it is fair to think about what is kind of the U.S.'s real steady state capacity for population. And if you look at some of the other more densely populated countries, not saying that we want to go to those extremes, but we're nowhere near, uh, right? Like a country like India is probably about one third the land mass of the United States has four times the people. So, you know, there, there may be more of a, 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 a medium in there. And, and it's something, you know, to, to think about as well in terms of our kind of rhetoric around, um, around education. I mean, sorry, around immigration. Um, Particularly, I think one of the, those other avenues that we've seen this in um, is the topic of refugees. So recently, um, the Biden administration, under a lot of pressure, like getting called out by both Democrats and Republicans for for saying that he was a hypocrite, he had initially come out saying he was going to maintain the cap of uh, the annual cap of accepting refugees. I think at like fourteen thousand or something, lowest level in uh, in in a very long time. I, I'm not sure how far it goes back, but but very low level set under President Trump. Um, and he very recently reversed course and upped it back to I think, um, I think around Obama levels around sixty thousand. Um, and there are you know def- certainly some stories where uh, these refugee resettlement programs don't work out well. But I think there are a lot of rural towns that actually benefit from uh, 
some population growth, especially if they are those aging populations, right? Because we know a lot of younger people move to cities, which means that these rural areas uh, tend to have a lack of people that perform the services like old, old, uh, old age care and things like that, that you, you really need physical humans to do. You can't, can't really automate those things away. So, I, I mean, I think it is something that we'll continue to hear more about. Um, and I would love for, for the immigration story to be less of one, like we're constantly doing people favors or we're, you know, sort of saving the world. I think there is, I think we know from experience that we've had a lot of positive contributions, uh, from immigrants to our society, uh, I would hope. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's, I, I think it has always been, been framed at like a, you know, we can't save the world here. And in, in many ways, you know, there are certain aspects of ways that immigration can save us. Yeah, it's a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship. And yeah, yeah I like, like, it's, it has to be reframed in that way. Um, one thing we have alluded to, but haven't talked, you know, explicitly about is there is a lot of rhetoric from Republicans pretty much saying like, look, these democratic policies of high tax, big government states, California, Illinois, whatever, New York, look, their populations are fleeing for more freedom, less restrictive governments, lower taxes, Florida and Texas, for example, no income tax. And that's really driving the, these population shifts. As we mentioned earlier, I certainly don't think that is the primary reason. It's probably not in the top three reasons for most people, but it does present an interesting dynamic where these people are, are bringing, are coming from, you know, largely blue states into traditionally red states. But as you said, you, they don't leave their values with them at the border of Illinois or New York or California. You, they bring those liberal values to the Texas's and Florida's and North Carolina's. And it's why we've seen, you know, Georgia go become a more purple state and Texas kind of potentially being in play, you know, over the last few years. Arizona is another really good example of that. Um, and it's just, it's a really interesting dynamic because if one of the reasons you do want to go to a Texas or a Florida is because of the low taxes, but you also are used to and in favor of you know, certain politicians and certain services that you're, they're used to, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a tricky balance. And I know I've seen some people on the right suggest that like, yo, we need to pass very conservative measures so that those people don't want to come here, right? Or like the only people we're getting here are people that actually believe those same things, right? So potentially we're talking about more like the cultural issues, right? Let's pass, you know, anti-transgender bills or, um, you know, stricter abortion laws or uh, like those sorts of things where maybe the liberals from up north don't want to come and take advantage of our low taxes because they're not going to want to deal with our states having this. And if we put enough pressure on our politicians in Texas, we can keep out all those like carpetbaggers. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I don't know. I don't really have like a, a, a point there, but it's as, as the flow seems to be from the north to the south, and the South is gaining more political power, as you noted, in, in terms of the Electoral College and House seats. Potentially, that, that's beneficial for the Republican Party. But, you know, if you, if you bring in a lot of liberal people, you, you potentially 
change the state from you know dark red to more moderate red or maybe even purple. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, isn't that what we hope for? That you actually get a, a little bit uh, more of a just a shades of purple around the country instead of these these red and blue states, because I think people who are actually neighbors can have these discussions a lot better than people who are in completely different states and very removed from how just how different people live, Um, you know, for for whatever extent that some of this internal migration can address that, I think it'll be a good thing. I I think it is always also very difficult to try and ascribe uh, any one motivation um, to to uh, to why somebody may up and leave a certain state um, and go live in another. I mean, like the flip side of the coin is places like New York and California have been so popular for so long that it's just like there's not enough housing that's affordable for people to live there. And <laughs> and now they're you know, now some people are, are, are finally picking other places to go. And certainly you could you could do worse weather wise than a place like Florida, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a good place to leave this here. We'll certainly pick it up when we, uh, when we get a little bit more of those demographic numbers, cause I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to hear, uh, hear, hear your thoughts because obviously demographics play a lot into how we think about the political landscape. Um, and it's been this, this giant fear, um, and, and oddly also a hope of the democratic party that the demographics are going to change so much, um, that it will kind of be impossible for Republicans to win, um, going forward. And I think, I think we're already seeing, uh, hints that that's just not going to be the case. Um, regardless of how the demographies shift, I don't, it, it, it doesn't seem at least in the, in the near term that it's going to be flipping, um, the political power in, in such to, you know, to such an imbalance, um, as, as some people may have projected maybe after Obama's victory, um, or, or even after the Clinton years. So, uh, will be something to keep tabs on, but, um, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, <laughs> you know, our same, all our favorite, our favorite drum to beat what's going on in the Republican party. Um, and then do a little recap of current event sports, some uh, some lighter things. He'd say you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You've got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Never compromise. So Liz Cheney, who we brought up uh, in a previous episode a couple of months ago, was before this week, the number three ranking uh, House Republican. And so she's a representative from Wyoming, also somewhat famous because her, her father is Dick Cheney, the former vice president. Um, but uh, Liz Cheney was, like I said, the number three Republican. Her, her official job was the conference chair, the House Republican conference chair, which is uh, in tr- kind of in charge of communicating the party's platform and message to the rank and file members. Uh, And as a number three in the House, she was the highest ranking Republican woman. So she had uh, kind of a a unique platform. 
And she was one of the 12 uh, Republicans in the House who voted to impeach President Trump, former President Trump, uh, back when he had a second impeachment trial. And that really drove a wedge between her and a large percentage majority of, of the Republican Party, um, both in, in Washington, D.C., in Wyoming, across the country. And so Liz Cheney faced a, a, a vote of whether or not to strip her of her leadership shortly after her, her vote to impeach, and she fought for her seat and kept it. Uh, but just this past week, she faced another vote and was stripped of her, her role in leadership, which went, uh, there's a new number three, Elise Stefanik, who I'll touch on in a minute. Um, but Liz Cheney no longer in Republican leadership. So the former uh, number one Republican woman is now no longer has the power that she once had. Uh, it's been a fascinating saga as, you know, you kind of alluded to before the break as the Republican party has been um, for maybe the last five years at this point. Uh, I read an interesting article and the headline was that it's like, it's being billed as another a civil war within the Republican Party, like the pro-Trump forces and the anti-Trump forces. And Cheney, in many ways, has become one of the faces of the anti-Trump forces. I'd say, along with potentially like Mitt Romney and a few others. Uh, and the the thesis of the article was that it's not really a civil war; it's a purge. And the Republican Party right now is purging itself of anyone who's not completely loyal to President, former President Trump. And Liz Cheney came out before the vote took place last week, and I think it was last Wednesday, she penned an, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post, and she pretty much said that the, the headline was, the GOP is at a turning point, history is watching us. And she pointed to her record, which has been overwhelmingly conservative, all of like the, you know, the right-wing think tanks that measure and grade senators and, and House, Republic, House members on how they vote. Uh, she was scored in the high 90s. She is the traditional conservative that have dominated the Republican Party for the last 40 years, the Reagan conservatives before President Trump came along. And what she said is that, look, I'm, I'm a conservative Republican. I am everything that people have wanted for years. And we're at a turning point now, and the Republican Party has to choose between the tr truth and lies. And... The Republican Party has chosen, and certainly in the face of, of Liz Cheney. And it's interesting because if people remember, if people listen to, I think it was episode 20, it was voting rights and GOP fights. So we, like Ricky, like you said, it's we're kind of, it, this keep, keeps coming back. But we had a, a guest on Vince Cordelessa, who was great. And he was, we mentioned Liz Cheney, and he was pretty much like, I forget if we talked about it on air or off air. And he was pretty much like, she's She's the old guard, the old Republican Party, the neoconservatives that that don't belong in the party anymore. The grassroots belong to the the President Trump in, in his base. And he, he's right. I don't like it, but I mean it's clear that he's right. She Liz Cheney was voted out in 15 minutes on Friday. Um, and immediately Elise Stefanik, who was who came to prominence defending President Trump in his first impeachment, uh, was installed at the top. And between Kevin McCarthy, who's number one, and Steve Scalise, who's number two, and now Stefanik, number three, it's these are all pro-Trump people. Ronda McDaniel, who's the you know the RNC chair, pro-Trump person, right? And I, I kind of like the take of this is a purge where if if this was a civil war, it's been lost. 
for the moderate Republicans, the anti-Trump Republicans, that, that, you know, that, that war, if it was being fought is over. Yeah, uh, that, that is, is evident. Like, I think when we started having these discussions, it was almost an interesting topic of like, you know, how will it go? Will, will these people sort of in charge kind of come around to the, like the, the greater good or what they know, you know, what they know is true, or will they sort of fall in line with, with, with these Trump talking points? I think we're, as you said, we're just so far past that now. It's almost, it's, it's, it's uh, like, you knew, you knew what was going to happen. I think Liz Cheney was like giving a speech, sort of her, like her final salvo and like everyone just got up and left um which is yeah. wildly just disrespectful to you know the, the third ranking member of your party um but it it doesn't it didn't matter and i i think again it comes back to a lot of what we've talked about in the past that we are uh our political parties are driven by what happens in primaries and who are your primary voters. They're your motivated voters. They are your base. And we know where the base of the Republican party has gone. I think what will be interesting is if they, you know, win as much as they think they will based on this um, in 22, because while the base of the Republican party um, is clearly very pro Trump, um, I think we saw that the national, uh, well, ob- obviously, no, we know what happened in, in the federal elections back in November, right? So it was not a winning strategy to go all in on Trump, um, but they're doing it again. And so I, I think, you know, we've seen, I, I always love to see it kind of the, like the cycle of these things play out. And I, and I remember I think a lot of Republicans feeling like, well, we, we tried the appeasement tactics with a guy like Mitt Romney in it. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't work. We lost that. So it was like, all right, you know, forget that. Like, what is the, what is the new thing? And it happened to be Trump. And like Vince had, had mentioned, like he really pulled in a very traditionally blue part of the democratic party, um, yeah, I mean, the white blue collar part of the country that really, unfortunately, responded well to to well, I mean, you know, you you can argue, unfortunately, or fortunately about some of the nationalistic type of policies. But obviously, as we know, that <clears throat> it wasn't just about that, it, it did spread into, you know, other things that that we don't, that we, you know, that we're, we wouldn't praise about, um, about the Trump administration, but how, how that has kind of morphed itself. Obviously, yeah, we're looking at a very different Republican party, but is it one that's really set up to win in general elections in 22? Republicans think yes. I I like Republicans from what I can gather are feeling really confident. I, in, in maybe this isn't, we're not going to talk about it now, but I think if you're a Democrat looking at the Biden administration first hundred plus days, you say like, wow, look at all of the things they've done. And if you're Republican, you're saying like, look at the chaos in the world. And it's, it's really going to be about how you can spin these messages over the next you know, 18 months uh, because Republicans are feeling really good. And uh, Liz Cheney is, she's going to face a really tough 
re-election fight. It's going to be hard for her to get out of her primary in Wyoming. And it, it, she's going to be fascinating to watch over this next year plus two, because in some ways she's free now, right? Like when you're in leadership, you kind of have to toe the line and do some certain things that are like for the good of the party where she doesn't have to do that anymore. And she's made a name for herself. She has her platforms in some ways bigger than it ever has been in terms of media and, and name recognition. And she's going to be able to come out and be made like the Mitt Romney of the house who's leading like the anti-Trump movement and trying to reclaim the Republican party for the quote unquote traditional conservative. Uh, so in some ways I I've seen people predicting that she could be like the first woman president, because like if she's able to corral this base and, you know, reignite the conservative movement that had existed for so long you know she's the face of it in a lot of ways and in <laughs> just as likely perhaps more likely she's going to be out of office in in 18 months and with without a job without a platform at all and so she's going to be fascinating to watch over the next year or so um i give her a lot of credit i have a lot of respect for her even if she and i like politically we might not see eye to eye on everything and uh but I do think that like character counts and for, for her, like she stood by everything she's done and everything she said, every vote she's taken. She's, she's stood by that despite like the vicious verbal assault she's gotten from so many people and the lack of support she's gotten from her, her own, you know, colleagues in, in leadership. And, you know, there was a lot of criticism of her because she kept talking about Trump while even the other members of the house that voted to impeach him, Republican members were kind of like, yo, let's put that behind us. Let, let, let's try to kind of move on and fight the Biden administration. But Cheney wouldn't let it die because what's happening right now, and I'm sure you know this, is that there's like a revisionist history going on about what happened leading up to and on January 6th. And a lot of Republicans are, Trump Republicans are are trying to rewrite history in a lot of ways and, and continue to spread the, the quote unquote big lie. Uh, and that like Cheney just wasn't going to let that happen. And she wouldn't stop talking about it. And it annoyed and frustrated other Republicans who wanted to just coalesce around fighting the Biden administration. But I, again, I have to give her credit. And I think whether or not you like the woman, if someone that really stands up for what they believe in and sticks to their guns, it, I don't know, it's hard not to have respect for someone like that, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, um, Coming from the other side of the spectrum, I think I, I pretty much have disagreed with Liz Cheney on on basically everything that she's ever done in Congress, going back to like stuff that her father was doing um, with the with the Iraq war under the Bush administration. Um, but I do like the thought of getting away from judging people as good or bad and, and really just judging them on specific actions. And, and I think you're right in, in this particular instance, um, it's, it's, it's worthwhile noting that like, she's doing this without any personal, there's like no personal gain here for her. Um, her, no. you know, even if she believed this, it would have been easier to just, you know, just shut up and just not, not say anything. She probably would have, skated by right because they already had a vote after she had voted to impeach and she was she was kept at that time so if she kind of had all of a sudden started to toe the line a little more or just or really just been quiet um she probably could have gotten away at least until primary season and maybe maybe that's what maybe that's what she saw like no matter what i'm gonna get primary they're gonna bring up the impeachment vote and now as you said now i'm free to say what i 
believe. And then it's right. It, it, it ended with her losing her post. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in so far as in this particular action, um, there's something for us to hold on to in, in that it's not every, it's not everyone who fall is, is falling in line. And even if it's just a few, it's, it's worth, it's worth noting for sure. Yeah. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the new number three in the Republican house leadership is a woman, Elise Stefanik, who's 36 years old from upstate New York, uh, and has really a, a meteoric rise uh, over the course of her brief career. And so she's definitely going to be someone, a name people should know, and, and someone to keep an eye on over these next few years. Uh, she is an interesting one, um, similar to Josh Hawley, in my opinion, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, she came up working pretty much for like a who's who of traditional conservative Republicans. So she started off, she was a top campaign advisor to Paul Ryan, who people probably know was the former Speaker of the House, was the uh, Republican nominee for vice president with uh, Mitt Romney. And so she did all that. She worked uh, in the Bush White House as a staffer when she was first out of college. And at 29, decided that she was going to run for Congress. Incredibly impressive. So she she gets elected uh, in upstate New York and then votes like a pretty much like a moderate Republican, like, uh, you know, a Paul Ryan or a Romney. All of those same think tanks that rated Liz Cheney in the high 90s, they failed Elise Stefanik. She was in the 40s. But Trump came along. Whether she personally had a, an ideological shift or she saw an opportunity or probably a little bit of both. Uh, and she came to prominence in 2019 with President Trump's first impeachment. And all of a sudden, her combativeness in defending the president made her like a viral superstar on the right. And she was all over uh, like viral videos and on Fox News. And she came to President Trump's attention. And Trump was has been very outspoken in support of who she is. And it's just really interesting where she, for years, like I said, she was Romney, Ryan, Bush, Cheney. Like she grew up under that. She like, I nominated Liz Cheney. And now, yeah, right. And so, and now she, she's not like that. I, and in some ways, like all of the things, all of like the nice things, the respect I have for Liz Cheney for like standing by her guns is like, I feel the opposite about Elise Stefanik. On the other hand, she's 36 years old. She's in the number three position in the Republican House leadership. She is the number one woman in the Republican Party in terms of elected officials. She's got a very bright future ahead of her. She's another one. It'll be fascinating for all the reasons to watch Liz Cheney, pretty much for the opposite reasons. It'll be fascinating to watch Elise Stefanik. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, Trump is a very dangerous wagon to hit yourself to, I think. Uh, definitely going to have to see what happens in, in 22. And obviously again, in 24, um, these, I, I mean, I, th I think it is worth pointing out exactly what you said that, that it feels like similar to a Josh Hawley, like the, this political opportunism, which is by the way, certainly not, uh, you know, relegated to the right. It is across the spectrum. Um, you, you're seeing, you know, s traditionally more moderate or uh, middle of the road Democrats um, go all in on some very progressive policies that, you know, five, 10 years ago, they would have said is, is crazy. Like a, a marquee, per, you know, sponsoring the, the green new deal, like things that 
are really out of character. Um, but because they are, you know, trying to read the tea leaves a little bit and, and thinking about how they can hang on to power, um, a little bit, a little bit longer. And that's, um, I think it's, it's really just like a function of how our political system works in that, you know, people are really, you know, only known by a few of these sound bites and, you know, their viral videos or, um, a big piece of legislation that they, um, that they sponsor. So if they see an, an avenue, like, how do I get my name out there? They're going to take it. I, I mean, certainly I think if, if she's right, uh, and the base of the Republican party is enough really to, you know, maintain some of the more middle of the road Republicans, um, in these elections and you start to see some, some victories, uh, you know, she's got a very easy path ahead of her. If, if kind of the opposite happens and there are some more losses, I don't know how much longer people are going to continue to just say, all right, we need more Trump type candidates, even if they're losing. Um, so, I mean, we'll, we will, we will see, I think it's, I think what you're also seeing is, um, an accelerated sense of urgency with the democratic party. They're just like, all right, we got to, we got to get at coalesce as much as we can and just jam everything in here in two years, because we're going to be like potentially dealing with a group of people that we just like, we don't understand at all. And so there's nothing that we're going to be able to do with them, but potentially a discussion for another day. All right. When we come back, we'll wrap with a little, uh, a little, uh, a little bit on sports here, and uh, and give um, uh, sort of a state of the state on uh, on the coronavirus. So the big news of this past week was the CDC came out and rather unexpectedly really to everyone, I think, including the White House, said that people who have gotten fully vaccinated no longer have to wear masks inside. And this follows the announcement just really only a week or so ago that you don't have to wear masks outside and really is leading to a sense that, you know, knock on wood here, that the worst of this is largely behind us. And while we know that, you know, the coronavirus isn't going to go away. I think most people have resigned themselves to the fact that we're going to need another booster shot probably later this year and potentially something that we're going to have to get maybe every year or every couple of years, certainly like the flu shots that many people get now. Um, so it's not like this will ever, it will be you know eradicated uh, in the next few months, but there is the sense that we're kind of getting there. The world is opening up and we're, and we're getting back to normal. I there are now a number of states that have gotten over 70% of their adult population to get at least one shot, in, including Massachusetts. Uh, there was, uh, on Tuesday, I believe, uh, Massachusetts didn't register a, a single death for, which was the first from COVID, uh, which was the first time in, in a number of months that that had happened. So maybe almost a year, the, the cases were at their lowest point, both Massachusetts and across the country since early on in the pandemic. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been interesting because there are certainly states that have been largely like, hey, deregulated in a lot of ways for an extended period of time now. 
we live in a state that is not that way. Um, and it was interesting because you and I were talking on the phone a few days ago, maybe a week ago or so. And I said, yo, I, there's this article that came out in the Atlantic a couple weeks ago. And the headline was the liberals who just can't quit COVID. I, and I was like, it's, it, was, it's, it was good. Have you read it? And you're like, yeah, I read it too. And the, the thrust of the article was pretty much like, there are, there's this group of people, you know, really, I would say kind of fringe far left liberals, in my opinion, you can hop in at some point, but and defend these people or not. Uh, and who are pretty much like so committed to the bit at this point that like they're with their virtue signaling, like they're still wearing their masks outside and they're looking down on people who are socializing with other vaccinated people. And they're still like refusing to go out and that, it was interesting because they highlighted a few specific towns here in Massachusetts, Brookline, who just voted that like, we're not going to lift our mask mandate for outdoor activities. And uh, Somerville, they noted who the mayor didn't want to let the kids go back to school, despite overwhelming evidence that like the coronavirus is not being spread largely through, through, you know, kids in school age populations. And I thought it was really interesting where there were a lot of, you know, Democrats, liberals who have been saying for years, trust the science, right? Like we have to, we have to believe in evidence and science. And those same people are now being like, well, I'm looking at the evidence now and it looks like it's, it's starting to be safer to send our kids back to school and to go out and socialize what we used to. But there's just a, a small, but you know, vocal as always, these people on the fringes minority that now refuse to listen to the science and now refuse to take that evidence and, and that data and still are, are, like I said, virtue signaling and looking down on the people that are trying to get back to normal. And that's, uh, I thought it was a cool article. It's interesting and certainly something I think growing up and living right now here in Boston, that I think there are people on my timelines or in my life who I see doing exactly what the Atlantic writer was pretty much like, these are crazy people. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I definitely don't want to minimize the fact that there's certainly some people for whom the coronavirus has like shifted a mentality just about the way they may think about transmissible disease and that certain people are just like a little bit more cautious um, than others. I think, you know, it is that that's potentially uh, just a, you know, that, that is, that is what it is uh, for, for, for lack of a better word. But I, I think, I think definitely we're seeing sort of the flip side of a lot of the politicization of, uh, you know, what happened in the first place, right? It's just, you know, we know that we have these extreme wings of the party, um, of, of our parties. And, you know, they, they both clung to one, I'm, I'm never going to leave my house. I'm going to put a gas mask on my face. And then the other was just like, I'm going to lick, you know, street signs, like whatever. So (laughs) it was, it's, it's hard to then shift that mentality. I think, um, I, I feel like the writer from the Atlantic is from Massachusetts because the only, the only examples they seem to have were towns in Massachusetts, but, but, um, example. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, I I mean, I think, I think reasonable people want to, I think following the science is what makes sense. And if the science is shifting, I do, I do have to question the wisdom of like how the CDC is kind of putting these new, um, 
things out there. They're kind of just like, oh yeah, and today you don't need this mask outside, and tomorrow. What they've been doing for that's what they've been doing for a year, Ricky. A yeah. year. Yeah. There's there's no there seems to be no internal logic to their pronouncements. Yeah. No, and often they contradict each other. So I think somebody there is like needs to go back to communication school and just like think about how these things play out for people who are who are trying to do their best and like take this take the science and make you know rules and policies that that more or less you know jive with what is and should be best practice so so there is there is definitely some of that i mean um yeah i don't i'm not really going to be out here super def- i mean i always defend people who want to make their own choices as insofar as those choices don't affect other people. I think that was my big problem with people who are refusing to wear masks in the first place. So if, if like you want to go outside and you want to wear a mask, like have at it, as long as, as long as you're not, you know, going to these different places and kind of voting to shut down schools and, and prevent businesses from being open. I think people have to recognize that certain people are going to feel certain ways about this, but the science doesn't support, much more restrictions on on our kind of interactions between people, um, especially as these vaccination levels keep going up. I think one thing we probably should talk about is that, you know, while we are doing very well here in the United States, um, elsewhere in the world, um, things are not so good. Um, and so, you know, before we kind of wash our hands of the coronavirus and, and say that this thing is over, um, you know, it's probably worth a bit of introspection and like, how are we going to help um, the rest of the world? Because I think in many ways it, it's self-serving, right? Like beyond the fact that we live in a very global economy, um, if this virus continues to spread in other parts of the world, it is very possible that we'll end up with a, you know, a vaccine resistant variant or something like that. Um, so it's in our best interest to like control this everywhere, um, and now that we're doing a much, much better job of it at home, it may be time to, to figure out um, how, do, how, do we, how do we deal with this uh, in other places that are, you know, still struggling, India, Brazil, and, and places like that. You're always keeping us grounded, Rick. I'm, it's, it's I know. I'm such a downer sometimes. Don't let people get too high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Last thing that we wanted to touch on was uh, last night in Springfield, Massachusetts, home of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. There was the annual induction of the NBA Hall of Fame class. And this class was particularly notable because it had Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, and the late great Kobe Bryant, who were inducted um, amongst other members. Uh, but, you know, Rick, you and I were just talking you know, before we started recording this and it's getting to that point in our lives where the people that we grew up watching are, are now getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. So on a personal level, like someone like Kevin Garnett, who helped bring, you know, the, the 2008 championship to Boston and uh, you know, Tim Duncan and, and Kobe Bryant, who were really staples of, you know, our childhood, like growing up, they were part of the two most, you know, as part of the Spurs and the Lakers two probably the most dominant franchises in, in the two thousands. I, uh, it was, it was cool in some ways. It makes you feel old in other ways to, to see them get inducted. Uh, but a few things on it. One, these were, I would say, three of 
maybe the top 15 or 20 players of all time that are in the same class. Like this was a really, truly special class. Tim Duncan and Kobe Bryant are probably two of the 10 best players ever. And KG somewhere probably, you know, in the 15 to 20 range, uh, watching Kevin Garnett play in Boston was like an unreal experience. His intensity, his, his defense, you know, his, his, how vocal he was, his, his just demeanor. It was a real treat and a gift to be able to watch him in person. I uh, watched him ducking from afar, like the, the silent assassin. Uh, he and KG were so opposite in so many ways where, uh, you know, they used to tell those funny stories where KG just wouldn't shut up in the, the court, just barking, barking, barking. And, uh, Timmy just doesn't say anything and it's just like it's just killing you on the side and uh, I think KG at one point said that uh, t- Tim would like pat him on the butt and say like hey nice shot man <laughs> and, and it just like it enraged Kevin Garnett because Kevin Garnett was trying to get in your head with all his trash talking and Tim Duncan's just hitting him with positivity as they go off the court uh, and then obviously you know with Kobe who was uh, transcendent talent perhaps the closest thing to, to Jordan that we've had since and the tragic death just last year in, in the plane crash with, you know, he, he and his daughter and, uh, you know, several other friends and teammates. Uh, so in that sense, it was a, a, it was sad, a bittersweet in a lot of ways. Uh, Michael Jordan inducted him and his wife gave a, a pretty moving speech last night. Um, but whatever, I'm kind of all over the place with those three, but it's when we have sports moments like this, I, I do want to take the time to at least acknowledge them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I think I, I probably came to appreciate Kobe Bryant's game, um, a lot later than, you know, it's, I feel almost like a little bit bad that I didn't, uh, take the time while he was playing because he was, you know, a Laker and I didn't, I hated him. Yeah, exactly. I hated him. I absolutely hated him. And I didn't know enough really about basketball back then. Like I wasn't an avid watcher of basketball. I was just like a Celtics fan. And so as a Celtics fan, just kind of hated the Lakers and uh, would root for the Celtics to win. But then, you know, over the past probably, you know, five to seven years. And of course, after his passing, like really getting to understand, you know, his feats on the basketball court and what other basketball players had to say about him. I think that's, that's always the the coolest thing when, when you hear a player who's got that much respect from, from all the other players, um, that Mamba mentality is like, is something that, I mean, it, it's, it's truly impressive. And, 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 and all three of these guys were, were really um, bigger than themselves in a lot of ways in the way that they played um, the game. I mean, I remember Kevin Garnett, his jersey is actually the only Celtics jersey I've ever owned. And it's like, I still got one too. Yeah, <laughs> absolute prized possession of mine. And when, when they won the championship, him just like, they, they trying to interview him and he's just screaming, anything's possible. It's like, I mean, there's iconic. that's an iconic line. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I'll I'll remember that for for a long, long time. And yeah, and Duncan, and Duncan when he played with David Robinson, um, it's funny because although they're both, you know, very opposite, like you were saying, Kevin Garnett being very loud and Tim Duncan being uh, the quiet guy that he is, they actually had pretty similar games, like very long, um, long but athletic guys who didn't, you know, they weren't the Shaquille O'Neals who were gonna park themselves under the basket they were actually hitting the you know the 18 19 footers um from the outside and so that that was uh i think i think also really interesting and just in like how different people's games can be so impactful like 
Garnett with the Timberwolves for years. I mean, he was the only player that they had like before he came over to the Celtics. And I, I mean, he made them a team like they, they could, they could play. I mean, they never quite did what uh, Tim Duncan was able to do, but he had a little more help with like Parker Ginobili and, and those guys. But um, yeah, it is definitely weird to reflect on the fact that like guys that, you know, we grew up with as the most dominant players are now retiring and like really like the, the guy that's left there from truly from our, from what we grew up with was probably, is probably like LeBron James when he retires. That's like, that's kind of the end of our, our like sweet spot of the basketball generation. Obviously we've seen a lot of incredible talent since then, but um, yeah, it's a pretty special class for sure. It was. Yeah. So that, that's all we got for tonight. Hopefully be on the lookout for another episode this week. Uh, we got what we hope is going to be a, a really good one um, in a few days, but as always, we appreciate everyone listening and Ricky. Good to be back, buddy. Thank you. Happy summer. Yeah, seriously. I'll see you soon. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share like American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. 
folks of different mind Because though we did not share opinions We shared an American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different mind Because though we did not Share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.